So I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me And then wanna hire me What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy Working late nights, you best believe me My grades can only go ace Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay-Z Farm so hard, let's get paid Yeah, woo! Welcome everyone to Farm So Hard uh, My name is Dr. Oscar Santalo I'm a pharmacy and operations and compliance coordinator um, and I'm here with one of my super turns. Hi, my name is Olga Ivanova. I'm one of the interns here at the hospital. That's sweet. All right, so we're, today's topic is going to be on opioid stewardship. Just a little background stuff, very introductory, full two episodes coming your way. Just to kind of start off, Olga, can you give us a little background on opioid stewardship or the opioid epidemic? Of course, sure. What, what is opioid crisis, right? We hear it all the, on the news all the time. And, and really what's happening is that um, there's data that shows that since 2009, the number of opioid prescriptions, which are typically your pain relievers, has increased in the U.S. by over 60%, and it's currently reaching about 202 million prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it, only 202 million <laughs> prescriptions in 2009? Right, but then if we think about what it really translates into, and um, rates of opioid overdose has increased tremendously, and about 130 people per day actually die of overdose. It's hard to imagine when you think about a whole 24-hour period, but if you think about one person per 15 minutes, that is really becoming a problem. And there are several medications that are considered to be opioids, and you, everybody probably heard of a Norco, which is currently the most prescribed opioid in the U.S. And surprisingly, the United States is actually using about 99% of the world supply of Norco. So what'd you say? It's not a problem? Nah. Yeah, a little bit. Speaking of that, that we produce much more of the Norco. (laughs) So why are we talking about opioid stewardship? Like, what's the big deal about it? Overall, pain management is complicated. Classifying pain is very subjective. Lack of assessment tools Uh, Even the validation of those assessment tools, like in other words, like how do we know that the screening tools that we're using, like how effective are they really? And overall, the treatment options, when the providers are selecting the therapy for the patients, do they have access to the full medical record to tell whether or not this is an opioid naive patient or a patient that's opioid tolerant? And also understanding on overall understanding the risk of addiction. So what kind of screening tools do the providers have on there and know on that like, hey, if I provide this regimen, like what risk am I placing this patient in for opioid abuse? One of the other problems is that there's no single guideline for pain management. Pain management is a subsection and multiple guidelines, some that we'll cover today. And the Institute of Healthcare Improvement suggests that the need for an opioid stewardship program Overall, because the opioid crisis just isn't improving. And another nugget I want to state, I'm going to pass it over to Olga. Something happened in 2017. A certain someone said something about opioids. What did they say? Who was it? What did they say? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we, we probably all heard that in October of 2017, uh, the Department of Human Services and the pres- uh, our President Trump declared the opioid epidemic as a national public health emergency. Yeah. Kind of like why we're transitioning to, for this episode specifically, why are we talking about regulatory firms, professional organizations, and the role they play 
and the role is just because of the guidelines that they establish. So today we'll review recommendations from the following organizations, uh, the CDC, CMS, JCO, uh, American Pain Society, uh, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, Pharmacy Quality Alliance, and the American Society for Pain Management and Nursing. Sounds like a lot, but we're going to breeze through it quickly. Again, I know I previously mentioned the role regulatory organizations and professional organizations that they play, but like, why do we care what they have to say? Well, they do care because currently um, a lot of regulatory and professional organizations, they do uh, recommend evidence-based recommendations and things like standardizing opioid dosing strategies and integrating non-opioid therapies that may be multimodal or opioid sparing and also things like screening for substance misuse before even prescribing an opioid agent and providing certain access to patient history with opioids and treating pain as a disease rather than you know a, one of the vital signs such as fever. I have a whole soapbox for that later. <laughs> Right. So the increasing of dispense is of opioid medication is, is really becoming an issue. And I'm happy that a lot of organizations, professional, um, governmental and regulatory, are currently recognizing this as an issue. And um, overall, collectively, for hospitals and health systems, these strategies can set a foundation for an effective opioid pain stewardship program. So what did all these organizations say? The CDC, they recommended an integrative collaborative pain management and practice model that included pharmacists, further recommending determining when to initiate or continue opioids for chronic pain, opioid selection, dosing, duration, follow-up, and discontinuation, and assessing the risk and addressing harms for this patient. This was published in 2016 for the treatment of chronic pain of uh, family medicine. Uh, moving on to CMS, CMS wanted us to expand naloxone use, distribution, and access, kind of related to what President Trump previously stated, declaring it a public national emergency. CMS further went on to recommend to expand screening, diagnosing, and treating of opioid use disorders and increase the uses of evidence-based practices for acute and chronic pain management. What did JCO recommend? They had a couple recommendations. Uh, the Joint Commissions, they recommended to identify a team that is responsible for pain management. Is that a pharmacist that does that? Is that a nurse that does that? Is that just a report we run? Is it a specific provider group? Who's doing that? I'm not sure. And also to conduct performance improvement activities that focus on pain management. What I also like with the pain management guidelines set forth by the Joint Commission, they also broke it down based off institution and leadership and staff. They offered educational resources and programs on pain safe and prescribing. That was one of their medications. One of the concerns is like, who owns that practice? Is it nursing, pharmacy? Some of the other concerns is giving information on consultation, referral for complex pain needs. Does your provider or, or your providers feel comfortable in referring to a pain specialist when need be? For leadership and staff, facilitate clinician access to prescription drug monitoring databases and access and use. There are some questions that you had, Olga, about that when I had you reading up on these items. Uh, what was your question? Well, my question is, 
other prescribers who are currently in the healthcare system uh, within hospitals and, and other facilities, are they required to use e-force? And e-force is such a big part of community pharmacy, and I have some experience in that, and we, we're constantly on e-force checking those um, opioid histories. But are the prescribers who prescribe opioids in the healthcare system, are they required to check e-force? Do you know? So... From a federal standpoint, there's nothing that really states that each individual prescriber must review a patient with a PDMP. They all just state that there has to be a comprehensive assessment, which in turn means that, yes, they should be using a PDMP. But it's tricky because when you read from a federal or even from a state legislator standpoint, what does that mean? An acute or chronic situation because a patient can go through so many different providers. So a lot of times they feel that in the outpatient setting that is a responsibility of the provider, but specifically for the inpatient setting, you mean to tell me that a hospitalist has to check every patient's PDMP while they're admitted? Is that realistic? I'm not sure. There are some ED guidelines that recommend that they should be doing this or at least delegated to pharmacy. But those are very unclear, and that's why initially when you asked me that question before the episode, I said it's very gray. So if they would ask me, should they, yes, is that a requirement, I'm still going to say I am not sure. And um, going back to what TJC was recommending, uh, they recommend that leadership staff needs to monitor high-risk patients for opioid adverse outcomes, specifically what deems a, a patient to be high-risk and when should this be accomplished? Is this a report the provider should run? Is it just something that it's part of rounding teams so that they're always assessing pay management or is this something that pharmacy owns that's also not very clear or is it nursing led you know there's other disciplines that are involved in this so the american pain society and an anesthesiologist had a nice guideline um, they had 16 best practice recommendations one of the recommendations also was to monitor patients receiving systemic opioids one of the other recommendations was to offer multimodal analgesia or non-pharmacological interventions. Can you give me some example of multimodal agents? Well, Olga. those would be things like acetaminophen or your NSAIDs, lidocaine, gabapentin, pregabalin, or ketamine. Yeah, absolutely. And they all have their certain role and specific indications. But those are examples. And there was also a term that we coined earlier called opioid sparing. And what opioid sparing is, is that uh, when providing multimodal medications, that it in turn limit the use and supply of opioids. So that's kind of why we want these drugs to act on these different pathways or outside of the opioid pathways so we can kind of just leave off the actual opioid regimen. The American Pain Society also recommended to use validated pain assessments tools and also to track responses also. But they also did note that there are some limitations to access patient's history or even a validation of those same assessment tools. So there's some kind of lack of resources overall at the provider's field. The next organization, the Pharmacy Quality Alliance. This is interesting. They're not really mentioned in many guidelines though, but they do provide like a core measure set of like little quick reporting tools that pharmacy can use. Uh, some of them are concurrent use of opioids and benzodiazepines. The CDC uh, had a statement in regards to opioids and benzodiazepine use in 30 days because using multi-CNS depressants can lead to adverse effects. Common sense, right? Uh, the next report that the PQA had was opioids at high dosages in patients without cancer. They had a limit to that. It was around, I believe, more than 120 morphine milligram equivalents per day. 
So it kind of tells you, like, the, at least whether or not we're trying to limit the opioids, we want to make sure these patients are adequately treated also, right? We're not trying to take away everyone's opioids. We just want to make sure that we're monitoring them. PQA recommended opioids for multiple pr providers. That could be an issue because, yes, you would need to access your PDMP, but does the PDMP communicate with your EHR? Like, can you run just a simple report of, hey, where is this patient filling all their opioids? So, again, it's kind of like an issue of access. And then also an issue of opioid prescribing. Olga, why do you think that kind of made the list there? Well, that's because it really covers the patients that never received an opioid before, the so-called naive patients. And if you're starting somebody on an opioid, the real guideline is to use the lowest possible dose and also um, to go with um, an immediate release formula, formula yes, yeah. um, rather than something that's extended release. Awesome. Well said. Well said. Well said. Got a super turn, guys. Another show. I just keep them coming. Uh, all right. Moving on. National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN. Uh, for those of my oncology pharmacists trying to manage pain, they have a pretty simple algorithm you can follow. Uh, pain score with a four or greater. And then it kind of leads you on to whether or not the patient's opioid naive versus opioid tolerant. And again, obviously, the patient's opioid naive. You want to refrain from using those long-acted release formulations. But then it's a little reactive, though. So you kind of treat the patient. It gives you a specific dosing range you can use in the NCCN algorithm. Again, it's very reactive. We want to try to be proactive with pain management. And then based on what you initially give the patient, you kind of see if, all right, did the patient tolerate the dose? Um, are they still in pain? We need to increase the dose. They tolerate it. They're fine. Leave the dose where it is. And just kind of just evaluate and go from there. What this guideline also had, or this recommendation, they also had strategies for specific cancer syndromes. Can you list a couple of those syndromes, Olga? Well, the examples of specific cancer uh, pain syndromes, then the NCCN guideline indicates are bone pain, bowel obstruction, and the nerve pain. Yep, absolutely. So moving on to our last professional guideline, just like spewing nuggets at you guys, right? But we'll, we'll do a quick recap. The American Society for pain management nursing. They had a guidelines on monitoring for opioid-induced sedation and respiratory depression. Right off the bat, they kind of noted the limitations with current assessment tools on the nursing end. So not only are you having providers, anesthesiologists, you're also having nursing saying that or expressing their concerns for the validation of these pain assessment tools. They also recommended opioid doses based solely on pain intensity should be prohibited. They didn't say not to use intensity scores, right? That's the only way we can objectively treat our patients. But what they did note that, like, treat the patient, look at the patient comprehensively and treat the patient. Like, does the patient have multimodal therapy? Is there room for improvement? Uh, do we have the patient's full medical history besides just using that objective measure? Uh, they also mentioned to monitor opioid-induced sedation and restorative depression. Again, monitoring high-risk patients receiving systemic opioids. And then what I did like here, they also mentioned, mentioned that organizations should develop and implement policies and procedures just to kind of like do what you say, say what you do. Might have said that backwards, but it still sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Before we kind of recap this version of the episode, Olga, was there, what was like the one takeaway from this or what did you really learn about this quick topic discussion that we had? Well, a lot really. First of all, of course, the fact that certain guideline on how to really treat pain, how to properly recognize the level of pain, whether it is a vital sign or do we consider pain 
on its own a, a disease state, right? And there's really limited pain assessment and those tools that are provided to the prescribers. We really do not know how bad the pain is. And there's really no direct assessment tool that would literally tell us, hey, this pain level is eight for sure. This is what you need to do. And there's because really, it's based on what the patient, exactly. the patient says and not everyone and feels pain the same way. Very yeah, subjective. Absolutely. All right. So you want to lead us off with the recap? Sure. Well, as we all understand now, there's really no single guideline recommendation. Even though we have multiple professional and governmental organizations, there's no streamlined guidelines that would tell us exactly how to deal with the opioid crisis and pain management. It, it is wise, though, to be looking at those professional and governmental organizations to see what is currently there and pull um, what they have in order for us to help and develop this area. And what else? I, I know we appreciate those previous, previously talking about pain being a complicated disease state. Again, pain is being considered a vital sign by many agencies and, regula and regulatory firms. Meanwhile, guidelines are looking at it as a disease state. So as pharmacists, when we're rounding, don't, don't treat it like a vital sign. Look at it as a disease state. This is something that we have to address as we're working up patients. It's not something that it can be easily overlooked. So in other words, like if we're just focusing on pain as a vital sign, most likely it's gonna be overlooked, right? And then, yeah, she talked about the limited validated and pain assessment tools for both pain and opioid abuse. And remember, like current treatment algorithms are kind of like reactive and we wanna treat pain like diabetes. We don't let a patient's blood glucose get to 500, 600 before we give them insulin, right? If we know the patient's gonna be in pain, then we need to provide them with a regimen so we can kind of taper off and not just going around chasing the patient's pain. And then again, like one of the other guidelines saying that the need for integrated collaborative pain management and practice models that included pharmacists, woohoo, pharmacy got a shower, right? <laughs> And then overall, the referral processes for complex pain management, are those providers feeling comfortable referring those patients to a pain specialist? When do they know when, you know what, I'm not managing this patient's pain, I need to get them out. Any other things I missed or you want to recap on? Well, also, I guess as pharmacists specifically, we do want to see something more definitive and more standardized on those opioid dose, uh, dose strategies. And also even on non-opioid therapies, the multimodal therapies that we mentioned and the opioid sparing with NSAIDs and acetaminophen and lidocaine and other medications. There's also... Um, be good to have a sort of a unified monitoring and quality assurance process in regards to uh, those dosing strategies. And of course, the such things as naloxone, right? The federal programs and to have those federal pro programs where current hospitals and other facilities could participate in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, you probably notice that some of your health systems already have some kind of ED initiative in place where a patient's going home with the opioid prescription that they kind of get naloxone with them. Just make sure that they're educating the patient's family member or friend, whoever came with the patient, because when you're educating the patient and they're overdosed, they can't help themselves because they're unconscious. Right. Remember that. So make, make sure you educate not the patient how to use naloxone, but the people that they're with. Great. Uh, the quick limitations, um, articles were found using mesh terms, opioids or pain management. These were just kind of pulled, like any guideline that kind of recommend anything on pain management or opioid stewardship was kind of used in this evaluation. 
So great. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, thanks for joining us on this opioid silver topic, part two, coming to you guys soon. And again, my name is Dr. Oscar Santalo, and I'm here with... Um, and this is Olga. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. All right. And you can follow, us, follow me on Twitter at, at farmsohard underscore OS and also on LinkedIn. All right. You guys have a great day. See ya.